Consider the following stat from the Harvard University Research Group Opportunity Insights. At 38 U.S. colleges, including five Ivy League schools, more students come from the top 1% income scale than from the entire bottom 60. When we leave in place policies, traditions, and biases that favor some students over others, we leave intact a structural inequality that will result in college admission privilege. Admissions decisions that ignore how this privilege works will inevitably end up with an extremely underrepresented student body like the 38 described above. Welcome back to the second episode of the Black Culture, Black Thought podcast, where I invite guests to review some of the most polarizing moments within Black culture to see how it relates to Black history, theory, and thought. Today, I'm joined by my former professor, associate professor at LaGuardia Community College, Jason Hendrickson, and by my mentor, Nancy Lee Sanchez, executive director of the Kaplan Educational Foundation, which guides community college students through the process of transferring to competitive four-year colleges. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yes, so I actually opened up the show with a quote from you, Nancy, um, in an article that you published on Forbes.com, Beyond the Scandals, How College Admission Privilege Keeps Low-Income Students Out, because I wanted us to take a moment to look back and reflect on, on the college admission scandal. This Friday, so today, because the episode's gonna actually be released on Friday, today, um, Felicity Huffman will be sentenced for paying $15,000 to help her daughter's SAT scores go up in order to increase her chances of being admitted into college. And I want us to take a moment to kind of reflect on what does this mean um, about the function of college today? So how does this scandal tell us how college is functioning, who is it allowing in, who has access to college, and ultimately, what does this mean for black college students? Um, this all started back in March of this year. The FBI was able to uncover a college admission ring led by former CEO the Edge of the Edge College and Career Network, William Singer. Singer worked with upwards of 50 people, including actress Felicity Huffman of Desperate Housewives and actress Lori Laughlin from Full House. The way it worked was that parents would make donations, with one donation being as high as $6.5 million to Singer's nonprofit. Singer will help increase the SAT ACT scores by either having someone take the exam, the proctor guide the student to the correct answer, or have someone change the answers. In total, Singer schemed with 33 parents. Like I mentioned before, um, Huffman who pleaded guilty, would be sentenced this week, with federal prosecutors only recommending one month of prison time. So before we get to the question, I also want us to just, I want us to compare Huffman's sentencing recommendation to the prison sentence that was initially handed down to Kelly Williams Ballar. In 2011, Ballar, who is a black mother, was found guilty of a felony for falsifying school records because she used her father's address to send her two daughters to a better school district. William Ballar was initially sentenced to serve two concurrent five-year sentences but the judge suspended that sentence in lieu of a 10-day jail sentence, 80 hours of community service, a $7,000 fine, and three years probation. Even though Williams Villar only ended up serving 10 days in jail, she did have those two initial sentencing sentences of five years, and Huffman will only have the recommendation of one month. So I wanted to just point that out because I mm -hmm. felt like that recommendation that's coming from the federal prosecutors um, versus what Bolar got, which was like, I wrote a wrong address down. Mm. I got five years in jail. I spent $15,000 to have my child's score get increased. And I'm only getting recommended one month of jail time. I thought that was very interesting. Um, and I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that? 
we can answer that a little bit later, okay? <laughs> so, um, but what I really want us to talk about is what did this scandal tell us about class and accessing higher education? Did this scandal give us a moment of pause to reconsider the functioning of higher education and the weight of financial freedom and career opportunity that a bachelor degrees holds? I think that actually we're, we're going to end up answering both of them at the same time. Um, as I came and thought about what we would be talking about today, fundamentally we're talking about um, kind of affirmative action versus legacy admissions. I think that the different ways that those are raced and looked at and how one is much more public, popular, and maligned versus another that's more of a shadow, uh, a shadow mechanism is something that we have to look at. And inherent in that is a discussion, this is the second point, um, is a discussion of economy um, and the finances that are available to parents, the structural inequalities, um, and I guess a part 2B to that is it's not just the money, it's the other M, and that's meritocracy. Um, you know, what is happening to merit as it relates to admission? Um, if, <laughs> well, maybe that's the bad question, you know, perhaps merit was never, much a, uh, never as much a part of it uh, as we once believed. Um, and to me, this case just highlights, or it's, yeah, it just shines a light on something that's already been there. Um, in the shadows, and that um, it's, you know, that meritocracy, it, it, it's somewhat of an illusion. Um, and, yeah, I would start with that. Thank you, Jason. Nancy, do you have any initial thoughts? So, absolutely. You know, whenever I think of the, the, the scandal, I always, uh, the question is, how much are people willing to pay, and why are they getting out of it, right? Now, especially when you're looking at higher education and a bachelor's degree, what does that mean for these rich parents of great privilege? But I always say I'm, I'm so interested in my community. And what does, what does higher education access mean to us? Mm -hmm. And just like you have a parent, right, and mm -hmm. these people that are willing to pay, what is their understanding of what this college is going to do for their talented or not so talented <laughs> children, right? And oftentimes in our community, the question is raised, are they even aware that these opportunities are available? And if they are, are there resources to get them to get admitted, enrolled, and to graduate from these schools? What I always think about higher education, especially when we're thinking about highly selective institutions, it's not the, just the name, right? However, the name, what it brings with it, is a commitment of these schools being able to meet 100% of need. And that means that a very wealthy uh -huh. child or student who's not so talented, who has a desire, will have, uh, and, and by the way, may have from health, mental health issues, may have all of the issues that exist in humanity that we all have. These schools have the resources to say, I'm going to meet you at where you are. Let's make sure that we know, mm -hmm. that, we, that we understand, that the, the students that are accepted to these colleges are no more talented than the students that are attending a community college. What they have is an ability to demonstrate, to your point, merit in a very different way. Right. Or, so to me is 
I want my students to get in there because I know that school is going to be able to graduate at, to graduate them at 97% right. rate. Yeah. And that is not done because every student that goes there is perfect. It's because the, the school has the mm -hmm. access to mm -hmm. the resources to graduate those students. Yeah. So that is the question. So if I, if I could pay billions of dollars and millions of dollars for my entire community to have access to this type of resources, not just the name, but the resources. I would want to pay that. And on the flip side of that, the folks who are very well off, who are wealthy, and are still going bending over backwards to get their student, to get their children into a, into one of these prestigious schools. I think what's interesting is they're going to be well off anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not for economic security that, that they're doing this. It's really for a brand recognition, a name recognition. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. for a social status. It's not for um, it's, it's not for the security or even the resources you're talking about that our communities need so much for the persistence, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think that there's also this misconception that um, the so-called lesser-tiered schools, lower-tiered lower -tiered schools, um, or just getting students who are not as ambitious or persistent, but that completely neglects the amount of challenges and hoops toward graduation that many of our students, many of the students I have in my classroom, have to deal with just to get uh -huh. through the gates. Um, whether it's community college or a four-year college, I mean, just being able to go, making sure that you are well-fed enough to yeah. do well in class, or that you have enough support at home, or that you're not supporting your family at home. Um, those are different impediments that make students have to take a break or completely drop out entirely. Mm -hmm. It's not because of some lack of academic acumen or ability, um, as much as I think that is perceived to be. I mean, it's very much an economic question. Right? And yeah, and like when Nancy first posed that question, what is higher education? And I think that's a question that I have been battling myself audience I just graduated very recently <laughs> so I went to school in adulthood and going to a school in adulthood I think is very different than just like kind of continuing on from high school because you live that real world experience and mm -hmm. then I went first to LaGuardia Community College and mm -hmm. their education made sense to me it made a lot of sense it was like I go I'm working my job I go to classes in the evening and for some reasons, all the classes I was taking made sense to my job, like in what I was doing. It was that real world connection. However, when I went to private school, there was some type of disconnect that I had that happened there. And it really made me bring up this question of what is the point of higher education? And a big part of that question came down to the resources that it provides. Like, yes, you're going to learn, but there's so many resources that these schools provide, whether it's mental health. I was able to have a therapist throughout my whole time at, um, at my school. I was able to, I, I was able to protest in ways I wasn't able to protest out on the street. Mm -hmm. I was able to get fully funded tuition. Um, I was able to go to them and be like, hey, I can't afford my health insurance. Can you guys help me out? I had students who went there and be like, oh, my cell phone broke and I feel really stressed and I can't pass my classes and they buy you a new cell phone. So I think of these resources and I think of like a person like Felicity Huffman's daughter who doesn't need these top tier resources where if I'm not mistaken, Stanford University, if you make less than, if you make between 65,000 $65, and $95,000, 
you will get 99% of your tuition room and board covered. Not all schools have that. But Cuny it is a growing, it's a growing trend within yeah. the top tier. In the Brown, top tier, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Like these mm -hmm. top tier yeah. schools will meet you 100% of your need. Yeah, many of the selective schools, along with the whole point of this school not having enough diversity and making sure that they are opening doors financially for students who couldn't afford them, offer 100% yeah. need commitment, and many of them will say without loans. And that goes across many tiers. The very few schools are that cannot do that are often more in the public se yeah. sector. So, but what I, I want to go back to a point that you just uh -huh. made, which is the real world experience. And I have had more than 20 years in higher education working with students of color who come from low-income backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. That has been my jam. And I love the work <laughs> that I do. However, they have a real life yes. experience. However, for me to say that Felicity's daughter doesn't have real-world experience would be false. And I am going to tell you why. Because these are the people that sometimes we are putting barriers between ourselves and others and saying, my world is real world experience. And the fact is that these are the people that I uh -huh. hope you will join in a boardroom, that you will join across, because let's be clear, she may make it to be at that boardroom, despite grade, despite misleading information, despite all of that. So to me, what I want it to be that it's like, all of our experiences are real. Is higher education the place where you then come from different backgrounds for the very first time as a teenager or as an adult to take part in learning from each other. Where else is it going to happen? And so I see higher education as an opportunity to truly bring a very diverse, very diverse group of people to learn together. Does it happen many times? Yes. Does it happen enough? Perhaps not. Yeah. But it, it, we have to be aware that as a as a Latina, as an Afro Latina, who worked three jobs, literally waitress, you know, clerical job, and and worked at, at the community college where I, I attended proudly. My work, my experiences are real, but I understand that I am one of many experiences, and I want my students to be unafraid, apologetic about saying, "I acknowledge you, acknowledge me." Oftentimes, when we negate the other experiences of others. We also negate yeah. ourselves. And that's not to negate the experience. When I say real world experience, I don't mean like, oh, I lived more of a life than you. I mean, I lived a different type of life that yeah. makes me look at college differently. I'm Great not point. just going straight from high school into college. It was like, I went to high school and I didn't go to college right away and I worked. And those work mm -hmm. experience, I think, adds a different layer of how I'm looking at higher education. To me, it was not this hypothetical, I don't know what I want to do in like five years after I graduate. It was like, I know what I want to do, and I'm not sure if this experience, once I did transfer, is getting me one step closer in the way that I want it to. It was getting me one step closer, but like not in the way that I wanted my experience to be. So then that kind of brought up the question of, what is higher education? And for me, a lot of it was a credential, and it was obtaining that credential, because it's a respected credential with getting jobs. I think if we're going to really look at the aspirational aspect of, uh, of what you're saying in terms of really I think you're getting at what higher education should be, mm -hmm. then we have to also be honest about what higher education is. And I'm taken aback often by what people believe the image 
of higher education is or the, the realities of it, um, especially as a professor at a community college. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. Right? This is something that was mm-hmm. new for me to break into. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to one of the most, quote-unquote, competitive universities in the country. But that was a whole new world for me. Still, my image of what college was did not reflect the reality of, of mm-hmm. what it truly is. My image, and I think this is the image that's shared in popular culture and popular media, media um, that image is living on campus, one, right? It's mm-hmm. going to your dorm and then yeah. rolling out of class and you're but doing But it's also having like and, the ivy on the side of the right. buildings and the yards right. and the, like, you um, know. Right. It, the reality is that, I mean, go back to, I think it was 2016, and of the, of the undergraduate conf, uh, degrees conferred that year, 49% of those graduates had community college experience. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that's in the popular narrative at all. The role that community college plays, who goes to school, what percentage of the public goes to school. We can't begin to even think about what, what higher education, what higher education mm-hmm. should be if we're not aware of what it is. And I think that's, that's a fundamental true. problem with what we think about with reform and what we think about in terms of, of you know, who we have in the classroom. And their experiences that they, the experiences that they're bringing with them for the American public. Absolutely, yeah. And also, just to like kind of piggyback on that, I think it's also like if we're going to talk about who has access to college, because I think that's what this yeah. issue comes down to me is that with the whole college scandal is who has access to buying their way into college. And I mean buying their way is that even applying to college, and like in a non I'm going to bribe my way into college, just straight up, I'm going to apply. And that costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to talk about making college accessible to students of color, to low-income students, we also need to just talk about going beyond just admitting these students, but what happens once these students are admitted? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we keep these students? Mm -hmm. At my school, I know plenty of students of color who had to take either a semester off, a year off, or transfer out of the school because every aspect, not every aspect, but a lot of the aspects of my experience and I think some of my classmates' experiences within higher education was going to a school that was very, making it very clear that it was not meant to teach you. Like as a student of color, it was not meant to teach you. And that was in the name of the buildings, having them be named after mm-hmm. slave, like former slave owners, um, having a teacher come up to like having an English teacher say that words don't mean things unless you put meaning behind them, going up to a black student and calling them the N-word. Like, you know? So like, what are we doing to students of color in the classroom once they do get admitted? You know, I, I want to go back to something you said and I'm mm-hmm. going to make sure I answer that question. But I am, again, it's going back to the meaning of words, right? Yeah. And the full meaning of words as it applies, as it, the, 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 the meaning as it is exist out there in the everyday narrative of our world does it include my meaning of that word right and when we're thinking about especially accessibility right we can say that a kid right now and I'm gonna use where I come from Ridgewood houses in the Bronx right with a low GPA minimal Uh calculus minimal English development very limited experiences that have been offered to the student to consider colleges, basically 
you know, very limited resources. It's not really that there's something wrong with the student. The system itself is not supporting for the student to even apply to local colleges in a way that will allow them to prepare during their high school years to even attend often a community college and not do remediation. So to me, I'm very interested in full accessibility. Meaning, are we looking at the student and are there resources, such as again, mm -hmm. this young woman who was not as talented and you know, and we can argue that um, we've met some really star students that don't, that yeah. don't yeah. have a full range of attendance. So to me, is how can we make sure that that student has full, is fully aware of all of the opportunities, yeah. right? It's just that young woman that you know that is talented that has it. And it's like I'm just applying to this job, one job around the corner from my house, yeah. and I and I'm like, oh, why don't you want to apply to other jobs? I think we have to look at college access as just as the point of thought of I'm going to call. Am I looking at all of the opportunities? Do I know, for example, that if I don't get, if I'm not ready. To have, or to have the profile to get into the top school, that community college is an amazing option for me that I should not be embarrassed, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. though there are 10,000 jokes about it, mm -hmm. that you should be, by the way, there's a trend in higher education where people of very high income are sending their children to community, community colleges college to do those first two to years. do the first two years to reduce costs yeah. because that's the only way that they're able to burst that bubble of cost. So let's make sure of that. I also want to make sure that I covered your the question that that you talked about, and that is, I guess, that, you know, American institutions are riddled with it with lots of injustice because it is the history of the United mm -hmm. States to assume that higher education in a nation that was born out of injustice and freedom and inequality and true definitions of accessibility to vote of, based on gender, based on income, based on property. Well, you know, that's, yes, we, that's those institutions. They were built that way. And so we have to, once we're ready to accept that and that we can say we're not too far from that, you know, yeah. the Civil Rights Act of 19, what? 65. <laughs> that, that's yesterday. I was born in 73. Mm -hmm. So that's yesterday. So we cannot, we have to push our institutions, but I'm not sure all institutions are really ready often to yeah. listen. I am fortunate to say that many are, mm -hmm. and many are addressing as yeah. at the speed that I want them to. No. Yeah, and I will say that my school. I don't think it's unique. I don't think any of my yeah. experiences when it came to race was unique um, to me or to that school. And I will say, I think my school tried to get it right. Like you know, they were responsive. Other schools won't even be responsive until it blows up in the media. And then they're like, okay, I will fire this teacher now because mm -hmm. we need to save face. They did that before it even got to the media. <laughs> like you know, so nobody ever had to go that route. But yeah, I do think that we need to push the boundaries of who has access. Who do we think is a college mm -hmm. student? I think that's what it is. We need to mm -hmm. reimagine who do we think is a college student. Because going back to Jason's image of what is college and mm -hmm. what was college in your mind, to me, a big part of college is that college brochure that you get in the mail with like a whole bunch of white <laughs> students with their little hoodies, with the school logo on it, and their backpacks sitting on the green, they're and that one like black student. In the <laughs> they're also intentionally diverse, almost yeah. comically so. That's what I'm like, saying, with that one black student, mm -hmm. the one, one Asian student, yeah. but like it's very sporadic with the majority of the background being white students. So like, you know what I mean? Like, you have those like singular students of color that will pop up in these brochures, but what's in the background that's telling me that that's like unique in that space mm -hmm. is like a whole bunch of whiteness. It's like, you know, that like little black dot in like mm -hmm. a 
the field of snow. <laughs> you just see it. That's what I feel like college is sometimes. So to a point that Nancy was saying too, um, in terms of the, you know, one of the problems is that we're far more interested in feeding the fed um, than we are with thinking about who's hungry. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have performative like food in this to continue this metaphor. Mm-hmm. Like we have performative food giveaways and so forth, <laughs> but. Um, or we're more, let me revise that. We're more interested in protecting the Fed, mm-hmm. those who, you know. Um, I think that there are efforts that come in the form of, you know, different programs that people have invested in, um, in the true neoliberal tradition, like we'll throw money at things. Um, but I'm thinking about, for example, you're talking about history, and, you know, legacy admissions go back far longer than the question of affirmative action. Legacy mm-hmm. emissions go back to the 1920s. It goes back to Harvard. It goes back to um, the question of Jewish admissions in, in Harvard and in elite schools when legacy missions began to get invoked. So that's 100, almost 100 years. Affirmative action is a question of very recent history, and yet in that short history has already seen it, seen many efforts to try to Chip away at it mm-hmm. to tear it down. We can go back to seventy, you know, the mid seventies and the Baki case, but the decades since have seen real attempts to try to break that system down. Um, even going back to the Fisher case, the Fisher case in twenty sixteen, yeah, um, or the Bollinger case at the turn of the, you know around two thousand and three. Um, so there's more of an interest in breaking down these programs like affirmative action that. Um, are far more controversial than something like legacy admissions, right? Which is more longstanding and in a lot of ways is a lot more dangerous, more pernicious. Um, there's a book by Daniel Golden, uh, The Cost of Admission. It came out in 2006 and it goes in depth about just the damage that legacy, ad- legacy admissions do and have done. He actually did research on um, Jared Kushner and talking about mm. how not only do, see, here's another fundamental difference, right? Affirmative action might get students in the door who may not have been, and that might be that student's or that family's first graduate in the family mm-hmm. or so forth like that. Things like legacy admissions are protecting and putting people in positions of consequential power. We're not talking about like a boardroom, we're talking about the highest offices of, of the land. And who's protecting that? Well, when you have the majority of Supreme Court justices from the very institutions that, mm. you know, in many ways um, keep legacy admissions as a standard bearer of, of their policy, then how do you undo that? That seems almost impossible from that point of view. Mm. But again, even if we take the elite out, if that's even possible, I think that we generally have this focus on those who, we have the focus in the wrong place. And it shouldn't be going on, you know, those who, one more point I'll point out with the um, recent admission um, debacle or the the challenge to Harvard's policies. And you know that that lawsuit's going going through as another challenge to affirmative affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, basically the crux of the case is that Asian and Asian American students are making the okay. case that affirmative action, of course, is um, excluding 
them mm-hmm. as they are in this quote-unquote middle ground of having the merit but also seeing their numbers compromised in these institutions. But yet they are complaining and they're targeting affirmative action recipients or the system of affirmative action instead of the legacy admissions, which are such a prominent part of Harvard and these other institutions for very complex reasons, but still that's the case. Point being, our attention is faced in one direction and not in the other, and mm-hmm. that tends to be a really destructive, divisive mm-hmm. problem that, that prevents us from moving forward. Why do you guys think that is, though? Because I have my reason, and I think it kind of goes back to who do we vision to be college students? Who do we think is worthy of being a college student? Mm. You know, if you have 35,000 people applying for 2,000 spots, there is a very narrow door to get there, right? But the door gets even narrower if you don't even see that door, Mm -hmm. right? Like, the further you are from it, it's such a, you know, it looks even, you know, smaller. The fact is, if you have legacy and if you have the resources to submit a strong application, which really, in, in all its honesty, you don't, you know, I'm not talking about those who are lying or trying to embellish what they're doing, but I'm talking about the, from very close, that door looks so much bigger. Uh-huh. My work is trying to get students yeah. to be even closer to that door. I am not about kind of like, oh, we don't need to get in through that door. I want to break that door open and open it for everybody that comes and all of the other doors that provide access. I think you have to really think about colleges have a lot of resources that allow you to philosophize. Like for us to be sitting here, when I think of my ancestry, this was a luxury to be able to sit. We did it anyways. We became professors. We killed it. We still did what we did with very limited resources. I'm always shocked at that. It's like if I didn't have light and I was really tired, would I be able to do the things that my ancestors yeah. did on their ownership as if I were furniture? I'm not sure. I would like to think they gave me the strength to do that, but Don't I'm not sure. But, but, and I bring that up because when you go to a four-year institution and you keep asking what does that look like and, you know, is it, you know, I, if we, and I, we should never remove race, but in this case, let's think about it. It's a acres and acres, usually, of a lot of resources that allow you to think through problems and that allow you to get to meet people and to really discuss and develop intellectual. That's not the only place where that happens. But what I'm saying is, it's like, what, that's what happens with what resources do. And especially for low-income students and the students like me and you and that were in the struggle financially and at times in survival mm-hmm. mode, having that ability, I want more people to have that. I am fighting for that dream. And that is because so many of those resources are hoarded, hoarded. Those opportunities are hoarded by a very small group of people that can say, I may not even get to the most selective, but I get to the one below that, and I have three choices at the point Uh of admissions. I want my students and those opportunities to become a reality because I think that there is great value in our students being given the opportunity to be students. And that that doesn't say that I, as a community college commuting, I wasn't a student, but I want a full range. Why is it that we are okay oftentimes? We say the only opportunity for you accessing community of accessing college is through this one college yeah. around the corner. I want it to be that that's an opportunity. I want you to 
be proud to attend there and do it, but given the opportunity to fully look at the entire, I want students of color and first generation to, to see the world as theirs. I don't want to limit opportunity because I'm afraid for them or concerned or aware of the injustices of the world. Mm -hmm. Who better to fight injustice than us? We've always been at the forefront. Do we, is it fair? No, but I want that to happen. Yeah, and just even that, I like, when I was applying to school, and you were there, Nancy, for this process, and it was a battle. It's a great process. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it was a process, nonetheless. But I remember going to visit Stanford. Stanford, one of the most top schools in this country. And I visited after I had submitted my application. Mm -hmm. And I did not take that application seriously at all mm -hmm. because I did not envision myself there. I was like, there's no way Stanford is going mm -hmm. to accept me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, not top, so I'm not top tier student. And then I got on campus and it was this moment of, do I have the best 